God's hands, but we want to pray that he will certainly bless our time together. We've been praying, and I know that the folks back home in the church already have assured me they've been praying earnestly that God will bless our coming together this morning. And the most important thing, of course, is not so much even that we are blessed, but is God blessed by our coming together? That's the critical thing. Is Christ centralized and lifted up? And if God will help us, we will seek in our own limited way to endeavor that this might be the case. I'd like to turn with you to the fifth chapter of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5, and we can begin to read at the 21st verse. And Enoch lived sixty and five years and begat Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah three hundred years, begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were three hundred sixty and five years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Amen, and may God bless even the public reading of this fragmentary portion of his own precious word in our midst at this time. And I'm particularly interested, if God would help us, in considering that 24th verse. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, as you probably know, there were only two characters in the Word of God of whom this testimony could be given, Elijah and Enoch. And he's a very interesting character. He was the great-grandfather of Noah, And as our text says, he walked with God for 300 years after the birth of Methuselah. Now, we can surely well realize that this was a long, long time for a man to hold communion with God and maintain a holy life. When we lesser mortals find it difficult, perhaps, to maintain such impeccable and holy standards for even one day. His extraordinary piety gained him the unique experience, as we've mentioned, which only Elijah also gained, whereby they did not suffer the experience of death, but were translated, and perhaps it highlights the experience as ordinary Christians we might have known had our forefather Adam not tragically fallen in the garden and brought such infamy, degradation, corruption, sin, and ungodliness upon us. Since the inception of the world, they have viewed many notable and outstanding men. Some have been noted for great valor in battle, some for wonderful achievements in the realms of science and literature. There are those who have risen to the ranks of greatness in practical realms and a practical scenario, but none of them advanced or achieved, rather, the unique testimony 
of this succinct statement. They walked with God. And that's a challenge for you this morning. You profess to be a Christian. It's not enough for us to be a Presbyterian or a Baptist or a regular attender at church. We have a profession, but is it implemented, is it backed up by this practical reality? We, by the grace of God, are walking with God. Now, before the foundation of the world, when all was ether and void, God, the mighty sovereign God, decreed and ordained that on this very day, in this very church, you would be sitting in that very seat for a purpose. Our God is not capricious. He doesn't do things just in a flight of fancy. Everything, the last detail or as the scripture says, the very last jot and tittle are ordained by Almighty God and none of us are here this morning by chance. Oh, maybe you had an inclination. I think I'll go along to Springs Church this morning. Maybe I've never been there. That'd be nice. And maybe I could go and renew fellowship and acquaintance with, yeah, but, but God, God before the foundation of the world, ordained that you should be sitting, even in that very seat, at this very time, under the sound of the word of God. He may not be the most skilled preacher. He may not be the greatest exposition you've ever heard, but God, but God, ordained and decreed that not only should I be in this pulpit, unworthy though I am, but you should be sitting there to hear the word of God. What a wonderful testimony Enoch and those other great patriarchs had. It's only four words. They walked with God. It doesn't say they were members of the tabernacle, they were members of the Presbyterian, the Baptist church, or any other church. This is the imprimatur of Almighty God stamped upon their life and character. Simply, they walked with God. Do you? As a professing Christian, my friends, I've been saying this to various congregations, our own included. Think of this seriously. One person in here, one, I don't know, and you don't know, one person in here will be the first person to be ushered in before the presence of the living God to give an account for their walk before him. One person, don't know who, could be the youngest, could be the oldest. We don't know, but one certainly will. Are we walking with God? It is appointed unto man once to die and after death judgment. Are you ready? Am I ready? If I 
be the first person to leave the scene of this terrestrial sphere of sin and degradation and wickedness and corruption and ungodliness and unbelief and stand before my maker. One of us will be the first. You ready to meet God? Am I likely to be translated like these two great men here, Enoch, Elijah? I don't think so. No offense to you, dear friends, but I don't think you're going to be translated either. You are going to be ushered in before the living God, and it's no use saying, I was a good member of the Presbyterian Church for so many years. I gave my tithes and offerings. I tried to support it and do the best I could. And, and, and did you walk humbly in faith, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the only thing that matters. Do we know God? Are we walking with him? Well, look, after these few brief introductory remarks, let's get on with considering the practical aspects of our walk with God. There is the succinct admonition from the Apostle Paul that goes in this wise. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Ephesians 5 and 15. So then, what are the benefits and the consequences of being obedient to this command? In a figure, for example, of two Christians walking together, there's a harmony in a fellowship. The actual bond, of course, that unites them together is invisible, but some of the factors involved will include living humbly, obediently, having daily communion with God. There's an element of privacy regarding our more intimate interaction with our Saviour but there is still opportunity to share much with sympathetic brethren in a mutual beneficial encouragement. You're aware that each of us emanates invisibly from us, goes what I would call an unconscious influence. You may be unaware or unconscious of this or perhaps even disinterested in it, but nevertheless, it is a fact. There is an unconscious influence emanates from each of us for good or for evil, for the mutual benefit of our fellow saints or perhaps the moral degradation of them by just our lifestyle, our walk with God is critically important. So what are the fundamental conditions? We don't have time probably to cover them all. For this particular holy, lowly walk with God. 
Well, I think there are many, but we can, for the sake of time, just take two fundamental conditions for a holy walk. First, there must be those who are walking humbly. Pride is a great destructive element. Vanity and pride have caused more trouble and destruction in churches than any other single agency that Satan has used. Vanity, pride. You and I perhaps having a higher estimation of our standing and state before God and with our fellow Christians than actually the facts testify when examined critically. It's a very difficult thing to examine yourself, isn't it? Communion table, examine yourself, see whether you be in the faith before you take this bread and wine, let a man examine himself. Yes, a very cursory examination. And we might say, it is well with my soul. That's not how God examines us. God has a laser-like, all-seeing, penetrating vision. And every modicum, every scintilla, every speck of that which is not in conformity with the divine will is known and written in the book of God. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a stupid thing, foolish, to have a higher estimate of our state and standing than the practical outworkings of it testify of. And that, my friend, you know, is not an uncommon malaise amongst not just Christian people, the whole world. We have a higher estimation of ourselves. If we want to judge something, this brother, oh, he's fallen into sin, that's terrible, and, you know, I don't know how he could have done that, and everything else, and, and so, and we have this cocoon of security, false security around us. Every time I hear that some Christian especially has fallen into sin, here is the first thought that flashes through my mind. There, but for the grace of God, go I. So there are requirements for a holy walk. Though the Lord be high, yet he has respect unto the lowly, but the proud he knoweth afar off. See that proud person? How vain they are. We don't like proud people, do we? People who say they're full of pride and vanity and everything else. Well, sadly, these people are not gaining any merit or respect from the Most High God. For the Bible tells us he knows them afar off. Oh, they might get on well with their fellow men and their fellow Christians, fellow church attenders, for we're all from the same initial lump of clay, aren't we? Before God, before the potter, as the apostle tells us, took that clay and he put some in the wheel and he fashioned it into a vessel unto honor. But... 
from the same from the same mound of clay. He then fastened another vessel, but this one was marred from the same, exactly the same clay, and he took that and discarded it. It's the grace of Almighty God, my friends, and never cease to give him thanks daily at least for this, that we only are what we are by the grace of God. And as the old hymn says, not have we gotten what we've received. Grace has bestowed it since I have believed. I am only, only, only a sinner saved. By grace. Wouldn't that save a lot of trouble in churches and interpersonal relationships if we really had a grip of this and were willing to practically employ it? Now these characteristics that we're looking for were definitely found in Enoch. For we read, by faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him then. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Hebrews 11 and 5. What's your testimony? What's my testimony? Do we want it up here in shining letters so that everybody can see what God really thinks of me or you or it? Enoch had this testimony. What a testimony. He pleased God. And so this walking humbly before God kind of encapsulates the attitude and demeanor of the true servant of God. Not one who is asserted to be so by his friends or his fellow church members who want to be gracious and not offend them in any way. And though they may see grievous sins and faults and omissions there, well, after all, we Christians sadly can often be what I call a bunch of fence-sitters. We think a lot of things, but we don't have the courage to assert them when necessary that we might retain the good offices and the good approval of our fellow citizens. And as far as we are concerned with that attitude, they can go down to the pit, unreproved or corrected, and we smugly think we have retained their friendship and their good offices. These things, my friend, ought not so to be. And I am not saying by any means that we should be busybodies in other people's affairs, that we should be constantly intervening to correct people. No. But I'm saying there's a challenge in the Bible when it says, am I my brother's keeper? And to me, at least, the response seems to be, well, you certainly are in a measure. You should be praying for them. And where necessary, bringing a word of correction. Even, even if you lose the favor and the position that you once held as being a jolly good fellow. Am I my brother's keeper? In a measure, we are. And so this walking humbly. That statement, I think, is tremendously challenging in the book of Job 
where he says, Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes, Job 42 and 6. Do you abhor yourself? I'm a good Presbyterian church. I was a Presbyterian before any of you here, probably. Way back in the dim, early 1950s, 60s. That didn't make me any better than anybody else. Did I repent and abhor myself in dust and ashes? Yes, there was a day in August 1957 when the Spirit of God convicted me that for all my church attendance, for all my Presbyterian roots, for all my admiration for John Knox and the Reformers, for all of that, for my veneration for my covenanting forefathers, I was still a sinner undone and hell-bound unless God intervened. In 1957, at approximately 7.30 on a Thursday evening, see, some events, are they not indelibly stamped upon us? Our dealings with God. And in my own little government house there, in the Clydeside town of Clydebank, which built the mighty ocean-going liner, some of which are lying rusting now over here in America, Queen Mary, Queen Elizabeth. And that evening, looking out on a pleasant scene of a tennis court with people playing tennis. Was there any spiritual impression? No. Were you reading the Bible? No. Were you a regular church attender? No. Were you praying? No. What were you doing? I was just looking out in a pleasant scene when suddenly, suddenly, it was as if I heard a voice. I didn't hear an audible voice. But here I am, 26 years of age, a young man not going to church, ungodly, not to the wildest extremes. And I heard a voice not audibly, and it said, that door leads to hell, and that door leads to heaven, and you better make a decision which of these doors you're going to go through. And so impressed was I that it was the voice of God that I got upstairs into my bedroom, never having done this got on my knees before God and said, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I haven't created, I'm not a pedophile, I'm not a murderer, I'm not an adulterer, I don't even smoke or drink, but I know I'm a sinner. Please, if it's possible, Lord, please, Lord Jesus, will you come in and take over my life and help me from this day forward to walk in your ways. Everybody doesn't have this experience. But I stood up. Nobody was coaching me. Remember, I wasn't even a member of a church, Presbyterian, Baptist, or any other. Nobody coached me, and I stood up, 
immediately now everybody doesn't have this experience but I had an immediate assurance and I expressed it thus thank you Lord for saving my soul was it just a transitory impression was it just an ethereal thought I worked at that time in a very busy purchasing office of a large construction company. And we were on the phone constantly, speaking to building sites and site foreman phoning in, where's my bricks, where's my sand, where's my cement, where's this? And I knew, now listen, nobody coached me. Did I know then there was a what? A verse in the Bible that said, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth and believe in thine heart that God has raised them from the dead, thou shalt be saved. No, I didn't know it. But the next morning, because I had a sleepless night, I walked into that office and I can see it as if it was yesterday. And I can see my colleague, a church elder in the Presbyterian Church of Scotland, sitting there. I sat here. The boss was through in another office there. And before we started work, I knew exactly what I had to do. I wasn't going to church. I wasn't sitting under Bible studies. I'd never even read the Bible, except a very cursory fashion. And I said to my colleague, and I remember it as if it was yesterday, Willie, He was 52 years of age, a church elder in the Church of Scotland, the old Presbyterian church. I said, Willie, don't lift that phone till I tell you something. He's got this cigarette, and he was a chain smoker, and the big ash was always hanging down. He started the week with a navy blue suit, and by the time the ash fell during the week, it was charcoal grey. He's an elder in the Church of Scotland. I says, Willie, and he looked, and I can see it as if it was yesterday, 1957. And he said, what what is it, son? I said, Willie, last night I confessed my sin to God and asked Christ to come in and save my soul and help me from this day forward to walk in his ways. Help me, Lord. And he looked astounded. He's an elder in the Church of Scotland. A man venerated, a man of position, but unconverted. Didn't know God. Well, son, he said, I hope you'll be very happy. He never knew. Oh, happy day that fixed my choice on thee, my Savior and my God. Well, may this soul rejoice. And I've been rejoicing ever since. Oh, you mean you've always been going along? No, we've been through the fire. We've been tempted. We've been disappointed, particularly with our own performances. But God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But God, but God is long-suffering, showing mercy, and has kept us till this day as we stand before you. 
I believe that practically speaking, the more our knowledge of God increases, the more confident we can have in his promises. The more strengthened in our faith, the more joyful in our experience, especially the hard times. Oh, you know, the devil's after me. I've had a real hard time. And I don't know about anybody else, but I know the devil's after me, and I'm really suffering, and excuse me, pause. The devil's after you. Rather hasty, don't you think? When the word of God says, Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourges every son that he receives. Doesn't sound like a feather bed kind of a comfort to me. Scourges. Chastens. A demonstration of God's loving care for us that we might be sanctified and more conformed to the image of him that we profess by our mouths at least. We sing about, we read about, we hear Bible studies about. But when the chips are down, when the scourging and the chastening comes and God says it's necessary for every child of God, then we find the true metal, don't we? Is the cry then, it is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth good unto him. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Can you say that? Can you say, this is killing me, but hallelujah. It's the way of the Lord. It's scourging and it's painful, it's irritable, and people misunderstand me, and, and, and I'm often maltreated, and I don't get my place. What is our place? But for the grace of God, the place for every one of us is in a place called hell for eternity. You love that hymn, Amazing Grace? How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Glory to God. I won't be translated. No offense to you. I don't think you'll be translated either. But if we will trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not to our own understanding as we read in Proverbs, then I think we'll find that we have a joy unspeakable there's a flame ignited in the truly redeemed soul that not all the fire hoses of hell can extinguish, for God ignites it, and no man can extinguish it. Hallelujah. What a gospel. Come along casually, oh yeah, that's great, and we believe this, and we think we're doing God a favor, maybe, and Am I doing God a favor because I'm in this pulpit? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. For he's given us the grace in a measure, in a measure, to be able to walk reasonably, humbly before him. And the benefits of a close walk with God are numerous. And some of them you'll be familiar with, but at a basic level, they keep us from bad company. 
close walk with God keeps us from the delusions of false prophets and their detrimental doctrines and practices. And when, my friend, the next time you sing this, think about it. I like this tune. No, forget about the tune. Think about this. What a friend we have in Jesus. Oh, what it is to have the Lord Jesus as your friend. Have you got a better friend? I trust that none of us have a better friend, be it our wife, family, or a friend, a better friend than the Lord Jesus Christ. If we do, then I would be careful about being hypocritical enough to sing, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs. It's going to be a true experience. It'll be put to the test. None of us, none of us, are going to get through this uphill, stony pathway to Zion, the city of God, without being put under pressure, being put to the test. How do we know if we really love the Lord? If everything goes well, it is well with my soul, yes. But what about when it's not so well with your soul? What about when there's perplexity and difficulty Trials, things you don't understand. Grievous complaints that you might feel fully justified in asserting. And then you remember, there was one of whom, unbelievably, it says, he made himself of no reputation. Have you ever gone about trying to make yourself of no reputation? Have I? Truly? And that's the one that we love, adore, and trust one day, not too far in the future, we shall see him and see him as he is. Friends, since I came to America and I've preached in Several churches, I've never yet got to the end of a sermon. I'm probably about a third of the way through, but you don't have to worry. I'm not totally insensitive. You get these preachers, and I've got more points than a porcupine, and you're going to hear every one of them, whether you're still awake. No, no. There's an optimal point where we can say, we've said enough for the Spirit of God to work in the hearts of these dear people and convince them of the things that you have spoken. And I want you, this as we conclude, to think of this. We've been reminding the folks on the way around in the great amphitheater of heaven. And there, seated on the throne in the middle, looking upon this, august gathering of prophets, saints, and blood-washed souls who've gone before. And there, Christ is continually, incessantly surrounded, unceasingly, with wonderful exclamations of praise and adoration, glory 
glory, glory to the Lamb seated on the throne. And in that place we read, that city, that amphitheater had no need of sun, nor moon, nor any light, for the Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. And from that throne, the bright effulgence of his glory illuminates every last corner. And so every eye focused on the Lamb seated on the throne, Emmanuel, join in the universal unceasing anthem. Glory, glory, glory to the Lamb once slain, now made alive. And you and I, if we're saved, you and I, if we're truly born again, washed in the blood of Jesus, not whether we're members of the Baptist or the Pre- no, if we're truly born again, we shall join that heavenly throng. And we will sing the song of the Lamb. Glory, glory to Jesus. And then, then, God, the mighty Jehovah God, one day said, there's a little terrestrial sphere down there called earth. And it's a cesspool Filthy, corrupt, ungodly. And the people there, even people who go to churches, are lovers of self and haters of God. Who? Who will pay the ransom price for them? And God's only begotten Son said, Here am I. What? What the the glory for the here am I? Send me, and you friends, you know well. We remember the incarnation. We remember that he forsook the comforts, the benefits, the glory of Emmanuel's land to come to this cesspool of sin, sickness, degradation. He humbled himself and took upon himself the sins of his people. Not everybody. His people. And bore them up Calvary's mount to a rough wooden cross and allowed his own creatures to lay hold of him and buffet him and dare we say it spit in his face curse him bruise him abuse him blaspheme him And then take him with rough hands and nail him to that wooden cross. For sin's not his own. He never sinned. For your sins and mine. And the only condition was that we recognized that we are born estranged from God by wicked works. We're born 
enemies of God. We are born in sin and shapen in iniquity, not a pretty picture, I agree. We have to face up to it. And God says, unless and until you repent. Repent. And from your heart say, Oh God, please, please be merciful to me a sinner. Friends, I have to say this. If it offends you, I'm really sorry. But I have to give an account to God for the day I stood in Springs Presbyterian Church and deceived people by inferring that it's insufficient to be a good Presbyterian or a good Baptist or a good church member. No, there's more. God says, except a man be born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Not me. Friends, don't. I'm just a messenger. Don't get angry at me. I'm just a messenger. Get angry, get angry, go, go home and tell God, I don't agree with this. I don't think that's a plan. And you'll find out whether Almighty God will enter into dialogue with you and discuss his eternal purposes. The command. You must be born again. And then, like Enoch of old here, and many others, and we haven't got time to go into all the things we could have about Enoch and the but suffice to say this, we're clearly instructed. He didn't die. He was translated, him and Elijah. I don't think that's a benefit I know anything about. Perhaps you. But we can know this, that we can have the same destination. It won't be long, will it? before you and I. It won't be long before any last one of us stands before our maker to give an account. And it better be fireproof. It better be waterproof. It better not be just cosseted and cocooned in a bit of religiosity. It better bear the imprimatur of Almighty God when he says, conditions for entry into Zion, the city of God, and to live in blessed felicity and peace and joy forever and forever, rather than depart from me into everlasting darkness, for I never knew you. Oh, you never knew me. Oh, no, no. You knew about me. But that's different from knowing me in the power of my resurrection life and then in a holy and humble walk before you. A big difference, friends. The devil would seek to blur the distinctions. But it's crystal clear in the word of God. You're either saved or lost. And the day will declare it. And I will depart from this church 
And some will say, hmm, I don't believe that. People rant, and I hate them on about, always on about the blood of Christ and everything. I don't care what you say. I really don't. Well, it'd be nice if they said, well, I think that message was validated by the word of God. I'm not here to receive the plaudits of men. I'm here to be faithful to the souls of my fellow citizens. And so, I'm just reminding you, there's no hope by just being a church member. There's no hope by being a nice guy. Last thing this world needs is another nice guy. It desperately needs a nice spiritual guy who will impart something of value, challenging, and conviction. Now, this possibly is my last occasion to be in your midst, and that may not cause a great deal of grief with all present, but nevertheless, we've come to discharge our duty. Why? Because we love, we love your soul. Not as God loved you, but for Christ's sake. We love your souls. And it would grieve us deeply to think that any of you should hear that anathema on that final day, depart from me into everlasting darkness. I never knew you. God forbid that such would occur or be the lot of any person here present. We pray. And so we'll leave this exhortation with you and trust it. I can't coerce, I can't force somebody to become a Christian. I can't force anybody to repent. God's given us, I'll just say this in closing. Have we any credentials? Not much. But we have led quite a number of souls to the Lord. We have actually caused some people to change their false theological views. We've even caused some churches, not many, but some, to change their perspectives and what God requires from an assembly of his people who gather in the Lord's day and any other day to worship him. And I pray God's blessing upon every and any labor that any person here makes and seeks under God to make for the extension and expansion of his kingdom in these sordid, wicked days in which we now live where Satan has been let loose for a season. God help us to stand. And having done all to stand, whatever the pressure, whatever the cost of God will help us. I'm going to briefly pray, and then I believe there's another item to take place, a closing song, and then we'll have a benediction. Let's briefly pray. Heavenly Father, what a responsibility you devolve upon any human, any mortal to dare to take up the holy inspired word of God. Forbid, Lord.